Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I'm Walt Hickey. This week, my guest is Max Fisher. He's an international reporter at the New York Times, and he's the author of a brand new book called The Chaos Machine. Uh, this week, we're going to talk all about how social media can rewire your brains and what you can kind of do to uh, to minimize that. So thanks so much to Max for coming on. The book's available wherever books are sold. You can see some links in the description. Um, but I hope that you enjoy this. Thanks. Max Fisher, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. You are the author of a new book called The Chaos Machine, Inside the Story of How Social Media Rewired Our Brains and Our World. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting topic for you because normally I want to say you're like a national security reporter. You cover a lot of different international events. And I was really struck by why you were drawn to social media. But the more that I learned about it, the more it made sense. Do you want to kind of talk about how you fell into this? Yeah. So like you said, I my background for years has been international reporting. So reporting on, you know, global politics and conflicts and wars. And I, I did not think of social media as a story that was for me or something that I, I frankly paid a lot of attention to. I thought these are just websites. It's just apps on your phone. Like how significant can it really be other than as a like tech or business story? And that kind of started to change for me a little bit after in the way that I think it did for a lot of us after the 2016 election where there was kind of this sense that like social media had something to do with Trump's election, but nobody was really quite sure what it was. It was, you know, well, the platforms, they're very polarizing and there's a lot of misinformation on them. And there's all of these like weird, crazy groups and like online subcultures on them that all seem to be converging on Trumpism. But I, I like, like most people still thought like, well, it's, it's just, these platforms are just reflections of what's already happening in the world or at most their their experience like any website that you would read or any publication you'd read and maybe there's just like a little extra amount of misinformation or garbage in them than other places and that really started to <clears throat> more significant significantly changed for me about a year after Trump's election when I went to Myanmar to report on the genocide there which of course was this yeah horrible and very sudden explosion of just complete like societal violence between the majority Buddhist group and the Muslim minority and when I was there I had the same experience that everyone who was reporting on the genocide there at the time had which is that social media seemed to be just like everywhere in the story. And I don't, I don't just mean everywhere and that like everyone you would talk to would be citing things back to social media, things they'd seen there, or groups they organized there, or like social media being involved, although that was also a big part of it. But also in the sense that it was it was just very clear, although in this um, in this way that was really hard to define, that social media was playing a much more active role in what was happening. The, the a lot of the um, hate speech and a lot of the incitement and this general sense of a societal movement to destroy an entire minority population was something that had emerged on the platforms and that the way that people were using the platforms, they're experiencing on Facebook, especially, but also WhatsApp and Twitter, that it was pulling something out in them that had not been there just a few years before when social media had been completely absent from the country because due to sanctions before 
um, like 2015, 2016, that you couldn't get a cell phone, you couldn't get social media. And then all of a sudden social media was everywhere. And then society took this like huge shift. Um, and r- shortly after I was there, even the United Nations had concluded that social media had played such an enormous role that one of their officials said that Facebook had played a quote, determining role in causing the genocide, which is, was like wow, crazy thing to hear that just like this website would be driving something so enormous and so wide scale and something that felt like it was coming from up out of the ground, but like maybe it was also coming from these platforms. And that was when I started to think, oh, please go ahead. I, it seems just, again, so much of what we've been talking about in just general sense is social media as a business story, but I love how this happened accidentally almost because you just realized, no, they're just actually a, a social accelerant in, in different countries, but go on. Yeah, that it, right, that it's 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 actually playing a, an active and really significant role in the way politics works, and the way the society works. That was kind of the fuzzy sense that I like a lot of people were getting. And then I started to notice because of my job, I would travel around to lots of different countries for different stories or just to kind of report or get a feel for things. And everywhere I went, I would hear over and over again, these stories that would link back to social media that would be like a microcosm of the Trump phenomenon or the Myanmar phenomenon, or usually kind of both. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it would be smaller scale because obviously, you know, things of that scale only happen a few times in a century, but it would be, you know, a village that would suddenly combust into this crazy violence over uh, rumors that had spread on social media, or it would be a town that would get overtaken by this like mass hysteria that would link back to YouTube, or it would be this far right figure, this far right group who had always been on the fringes of society. And then social media came in and all of a sudden that far right group or figure was like the most popular thing and completely running the culture and then would get elected to some local office. And it started happening over and over again. And that was when I thought, okay, there's, there's enough of a, of a pattern here that it's worth trying to understand. Why does this keep happening? What is it about social media that seems to be at least potentially having this, this extreme of an effect on the way that societies and politics work? Why is it the same pattern over and over again? Um, and that started for me in like early 2018 and it became a series of stories for the paper. And then it became the book of trying to answer this question of what is social media? How is it changing us? Uh, how does it change our behavior? How does it change the way that our minds work? How does it change our politics? And tried to pull in for that a lot of, you know, traditional on the ground reporting of finding a story of a, of a place or people that have been affected by this and then retracing step by step how it had happened, what it had to do with social media, but also, and this is the part of the book that I'm really proud of because I feel like it's it's um, the first time it has been done on this scale is to try to pull in every relevant field of scientific inquiry that was looking into this because I wasn't the only one who was having this realization. There was yeah. also this whole um, constellation of neuroscientists and social psychologists and social scientists who were all all having the same sense and we're trying to empirically answer these same questions and pulling together a lot of their research. There's some original research of theirs that appears in the book, but to try to get a sense for how is this happening? Why is it happening? And what does it mean for us as a, like as a species? Now, this is, this is why I was so frankly excited to, to see this book because I know your work kind of going way back. Um, what William and Mary, what up? Um, but like, yeah, sure, I think, flat hat. yeah. Um, but so I, I've been a fan of your work a long time. And one thing that I've always admired about it was like, you do really kind of go to the, 
to the mattresses when it comes to figuring out the research and the and, and actually what's being done in the academic world as well as the scientific world as well as all that. And so I have been looking forward to, the, to that component of this. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the science is beginning to reveal about how, you know, social media kind of gets its hooks in us? Sure. Yeah. So, oh man, it's a, it's a big, it's a big question. Let me give you um, a Thanks couple question, of examples. One might say. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, let me give you an, a couple of examples uh, to give you a sense for kind of how, how people are starting to understand this. Cause it's really interesting, I think. Um, and these are just like teeny tiny tips of the iceberg of understanding. Cause to, to understand something as huge as the effect of social media on society, there are like 18 different steps in the chain of, you know, you interacting with a post and then that happening on a scale of billions of people and then society changes. There's so many things that happen in that system that um, you can't understand all of them, but I, I couldn't possibly relay all of them in, in one anecdote. So I'll give you two. Um, the first is, uh, let me see, what do I want to start with? Okay, so there was one study where these social scientists wanted to understand like, okay, does social media actually change us? Is it just, you know, we happen to be on the internet and other things are changing? Like, can we actually narrow this down? And they took these two really big groups of people, an experimental group and a control group, and they had the experimental group deactivate Facebook for four weeks. So just four weeks, which, you know, relative to the amount of time that we all spend on these platforms, you know, 10, 15 years into the social media era is very small and just one platform, not even all of social media. So you would expect the effects to be very small. And then over those four weeks, monitored um, what just what of any possible thing they could think to measure what's changing with these people. How are they um, how are they changing the way that they think about the world, the way that they interact with the world? And they found two really significant changes to the people who deactivated Facebook for those four weeks. The first was that they became just much happier. Uh, they reported <laughs> an increase in happiness and life satisfaction equivalent to about a third the effect of going to therapy, which blew my Holy mind because crap. I know because therapy is has a huge effect on your happiness yeah. and it's also really expensive, but turning off Facebook is free. And that, that was one of a lot of... <laughs> pieces of research that support this theory that is now very widely accepted, which is that social media is addictive um, mm -hmm. and, and addictive, physically addictive, and that it, it creates a chemical reaction in your brain that makes you feel compelled to go back to it. Um, and that is a piece of evidence that we don't use it because we like to use it or because it makes us happy, but rather we use it because we've been addictive, even if we hide that from ourselves and we tell ourselves sure. that we just want to pull up Facebook or Twitter. Um, and the second thing that they found was that those people who had deactivated Facebook, that their level of political and social polarization changed pretty dramatically. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was political and social issue polarization, which means that the degree to which they were polarized on issues that were salient in society rather than their overall, how they kind of viewed the world. And they found that that reduction in their polarization was equivalent to 50% of the overall increase in polarization in American life over the past 25 years, which is the like entire cycle wow. of... Yeah. You know, the polarization of American politics. And then, you know, the researchers, if they were here, they would be they would be grabbing at my shirt to emphasize that doesn't <laughs> mean that social media drove 50% of overall polarization in American life, but it does mean 
that its role in the way that we as individuals experience that polarization is is extremely dramatic. Um, uh-huh. Of course, this is just a few thousand people for this study. But if you ask yourself, okay, what about if that's all of society, then the effect starts to become pretty dramatic. And that's when it starts to change politics overall. If everyone is 50% more polarized than they would be if they turned off just this one platform, God knows how much less polarized they would be if they turned off all the platforms and for a longer period of time. So that was one piece of evidence that didn't measure how social media changes you, but was just a really one of many very strong pieces of evidence that it does change you in these ways that we kind of have like a fuzzy sense that they do, but like, okay, it really shows you that it does. Another study that is, um, it's one of my, it's one in the book that I cite the most, not because I think it's the most consequential, but because it hit really close to home for me personally. And everybody Mm -hmm. I know who's like you or me is like very engaged in media or in politics who spends a lot of time online. It's like, whoa, okay, that's a little scary. Um, That did show how it changes you. And for this study, a group of researchers, um, took a a group of people for this experiment. And before the experiment, they tested them all on their level of internal outrage. So like how prone were they to outrage like as people, like in their nature. Uh, And they gauged this. And then they had um, the experimental group for the people in the study send a fake tweet on this like fake Twitter platform that was built to look like Twitter so that they could control the experience that Mm -hmm. expressed outrage in it. Even if these are people who didn't really want to send an outrage tweet, they would say you have to send it. And for a group of these people who sent the outrage filled tweet, they would... Um, show it back to them later and they would show it with a lot of engagement on it, a lot of retweaks and likes. And this is something oh, that we know man. that the platforms do because there's these other experiments that show that if you have outrage words in your post, its reach will be dramatically amplified by Absolutely, them. yeah. So it's, it's you know, sometimes you think, oh, outrage travels well because people respond to it. That's actually not why it travels well. The reason it travels well is because the platforms will deliberately pull it out and then shove it in front of a lot of people to engage them because it's this very charged emotion that gets a lot of participation. So if you send an they've outreach got their thumb on the scale, they've got their thumb way on the scale. Yeah, that's right. So if you send an outreach tweet, it will get engagement almost certainly because the platform has ensured that it will, because it's a great way to keep you on the platform and keep your friends on the platform. So what they did in this experiment is they would show people that, you know, that their outrage tweet had done well and they found that it made those people more inclined to send more outrage tweets in the future. And if they went through this cycle a few times with people had them send a few outrage tweets, the really stunning thing that they would find is that these uh, subjects in the experiment, even if they had not been prone to outrage beforehand, even if they were not outrage inclined people, that they would become that way, that they would become not much as more inclined to send tweets with outrage in it. But even when they were away from the computer, even when they were away from social media, their internal nature had become much more outrage prone. And this training that they had received on the platform because they had gotten this positive social reward. And this is something that hits on this like very deep school of social science and social psychology that says that our sense of morality of right and wrong is something that we derive heavily from social cues. If we think yeah. our community of people around us really want us to behave a certain way and will reward us if we do, we become internally more prone to chase and to seek out that behavior not just because superficially we want the positive attention, but because our minds have tricked us into wanting to do that in order to get in good with our community because of the nature of the way that we evolved to just how we are as a species. And so that was something that really blew my mind because it shows you 
that the platforms are deliberately inculcating a type of activity that doesn't just change how you behave when you're on social media, but that changes your internal nature. It changes the way that your emotions are. It changes the way that you behave. And when you start to um, see these, you know, because there's, there's dozens of examples like this in the book of these kinds of changes that it, it imbues in you. When you see all of these, and then you see that it's the overwhelming majority of Americans are engaging with these systems dozens of times a day, American life today starts to make a little bit more sense. And you start to yeah. see this kind of training effect and this change that really does feel like it's been society-wide um, is something that is edge-driven, I think, a lot more than we thought or maybe wanted to admit to ourselves by these incredibly powerful companies and their technology. It's so interesting that you call it like a training effect because like as you were describing that experiment, I was like, yeah, I've seen that experiment before. If you, you know, if the monkey presses the button and then they receive apple juice, then all of a sudden they're going to really love pressing the button. Like it's, it's weird that it's that simple, man. Like, I know. And it's, it's, so this is, I think this is one of the wild things about social media is that it is that, you know, monkey with a lever button, but they, these companies figured out not necessarily because they were so insightful about social psychology. Although if you go back about 10 or 15 years, there would be very open discussions in Silicon Valley within the industry about um, exploiting our cognitive weak points, about training yeah. us, about changing our nature in order to make- They hired people out of Vegas to, to, to do some of the engagement is my understanding too. It's they modeled the platforms specifically and deliberately on- slot machines because slot machines are physically addictive because they, and if you look at your phone, it looks like a slot machine. You've got the colors, yeah. you've got the flashing lights, you get that haptic feedback when your phone vibrates. But even more than that, what they were trying to hook into was not just the kind of physically pleasing sense of pulling a slot machine, which is addictive and does make you want to go back to it. But they wanted to, and very successfully did tap into social needs and social impulses, which is not it's not something that we're used to having manipulated on a like physical, chemical, personal level like that. I mean, we kind right. of we, we might be aware that it's happening like our politics, like oh, politicians are appealing to our baser nature, but the platforms have learned how to do it in this, you know, like you said, rat hammering at the lever way, this kind of like monkey in an experiment way that is both extraordinarily powerful because it bypasses all of the normal social checks and the social norms that we use to kind of mediate our own behavior, mediate one another's behavior by delivering it through these kind of, um, you know, electric, electric bolts to the brain uh, of these, yeah. these kind of like reward systems and punishment systems, but also because its influence is hidden. Um, I think one of the most important things to understand about social media is that you log on and you think that you're having interactions with all your friends and all the people in your community and that that's where the feedback is coming from that if you say something that they like and you get a lot of engagement that means that your friends like it and if you say something that gets no engagement that means your friends didn't like it but that's actually not what you're experiencing what you're experiencing are the preferences and choices of desires of these very powerful algorithms and many other systems that are built into the technology that are deliberately designed to encourage and train certain behaviors in you because those are going to be good for boosting your engagement and for boosting the engagement of people you interact with. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned like politicians appealing to our baser natures, which has always been the case for like a long time. I was wondering like, 
what's the deal with social media? Is it additive or is it subtractive? Is it like chipping away at like the social mores that prevent us from being assholes to each other all the time? And is it subtractive or is it giving people new fascinating ways to be cruel to one another and new ideas about how to do it like additive and like, over the past couple of years, I've come more in line to the latter idea. And, and over the course of this conversation, I'm really around to that. Like, so like, I guess kind of putting it to you, like, do you think that, a, what do you think more of it is, is that, is it social media giving folks new ways to engage and new ways to kind of self polarize, or is it just revealing kind of an inherent polarization underneath <laughs> the hood, just kind of removing some of the guardrails? I mean, it's, it's all of the above, I think. And when you're talking about something as complex in the sense that there are many different inputs and outputs as like social polarization in American politics, there are going to be 30 different causes of that. And of course, yeah. none of them are going to be the sole cause and driver. And the fact that there are 30 all at the same time means they're all kind of multiplying each other. So you sometimes hear from the social media companies will be like, well, how can you blame us for social polarization when there's a long history of racism in America and racism is playing a role in social polarization? And it's like, sure. But, you know, if your product is worsening that by 10 percent, by 30 percent, by 70 percent, you know, whatever the number is, then that's that's pretty significant, even if there has to be something in there to multiply in the first place. I heard this um, this quote from this one politician in a, in a country that I went to called Sri Lanka to report on the way that social media basically blown up the entire country over the course of a couple of months, um, where he said, uh, the germs are ours, but Facebook is the wind. What he went by that was that there had been racial animus in this country, there had been distrust, there had been kind of weaknesses in the social system before social media got there, but it was the social media systems that amped in and multiplied this not just in a, a like passive sense that social media multiplies everything, which is another defense that you hear from the companies, but in the sense that these systems have learned, even if the people designing them didn't deliberately design this in, they have learned to hone in very specifically on very specific impulses, um, moral outrage, us versus them tribalism, uh, more extreme forms of identity, narrower forms of identity, distrust of institutions, to really hone in on these things and to dial those just way the hell up and to not do that for other forms of sentiment, not other forms of engagement, like, you know, bringing everyone together or a kind of shared sense of unity and purpose or just information that is uh, spread because it's true rather than because it's emotionally engaging or negatively engaging. And they just mega amplify those because those are the things that, keep us plugged into the platform. The, the people who run social media companies, they actually have more than enough data to know this by now because they started running internal experiments over the last few years to try to understand what their systems are doing. They're doing the same version of what social scientists have been doing from the outside, except they're inside the company. So they have a lot more data that they can work with. And all of their own internal researchers reached the exact same conclusions that these platforms drive people towards um, very specific kinds of conspiracy theories that they create very specific kinds of identity, the most extreme of which is is QAnon. But you see things like QAnon over and over in the platforms because that's what sure. gets people to engage more. Uh, that Even it tries like them. when Harry Styles and Chris Pine, like that got real QAnon really <laughs> goddamn quick in the course of a day and a half. Like That's actually, that's actually a great example because it's something where you pick a side 
your your team Harry Styles, your team Chris Pine, your team you know uh, Florence Pugh, and then you that becomes a like group identity on social media that like hey we all agree that Florence Pugh is the best, and we all agree that the people who support these other celebrities are the absolute worst. And I'm going to make posting all day about how mad I am at people in this social outgroup, which is Chris Pine fans, which I didn't know I hated until ten minutes ago, but now absolutely hate my whole deal and my whole identity. And it's, you see, it's exactly the kind of thing that does a really, really well at boosting engagement. So, you know, social media did not invent Chris Pine and Harry Styles getting in a fight, but it did invent turning the fandom wars over it into just a whole ass identity for seemingly like a really large number of people. And I think that that's actually, I think, a useful way to separate out what's the difference between what social media does and, and what are the pre-existing things that it pulls from. I love that. I love that's really, I think that's really good. I think, you know, my hope is, uh, my hope is that the last chapter of this book is telling solutions for this possible problem. <laughs> I guess um, I, I would like that a lot because it seems like there's a lot of problem here. I guess let's just kind of, I'll, I'll, let's do this two ways. One, what would you recommend people kind of personally do in their own lives mm-hmm. and, and with their loved ones regarding social media? And then two, like, what's the like the 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 big solutions that you're kind of looking at as a way to kind of address some of these problems? Sure. So there's there's a like stock list of tips that I give, but I think what's more important than the specific tips is kind of what ties them all together. It'll tell you the tips, and it'll tell you what what why they're why they're important and what they tie together. Um, limit your time on obviously limit your time on social media, give yourself specific times to go on it. It's, it's, you know, it would be easy to say, just delete all the platforms, never go online, throw your smartphone away and live in a cabin in the woods as a poet. But like most of us can't do that. We have to be online. We have to be on social media because these platforms have completely conquered the way that we relate to one another and relate to the news. Um, Turning your phone on grayscale is actually a really, really effective way to make social media less addictive. So you will, yeah, it's on iPhones. It's really easy. I think if you tap, or you have to go into settings and change the setting where you turn it on to grayscale. And then if you tap the power button three times, it goes between color and grayscale. And because they are designed to be visually addictive, if you turn it on grayscale, you will just find that the emotional effect from being on the platforms goes way, way down, and the ease of turning it off goes way, way up. It's it's amazing how much of a change you will see from that, which is you know, again, proof that you're opening it because you've been addicted, not because you want to yeah. open it. Um, if you are using it, uh, try, and this is this is a hard thing to sell to people, especially in a time of like high stakes in politics and deep political polarization and where it feels like, you know, every election is maybe going to be the last election in American democracy. Yeah. Try not to outrage post. And if you do... Quote tweeting, you know, where you take someone else's post that you don't like that you thought was dumb and then quoting it and then adding a comment about like, look at this idiot, what they had to say. Try to just never do that at all. And the reason not to do it isn't because that person doesn't deserve it. And it's not even because like, I'm not someone who worries about like, oh, no, the coarsening of our discourse. Why can't we all get along? Because there are good (laughs) reasons we can all get along. And like there are some stakes to our politics right now. The reason not to do it is because... um, First of all, you're not actually adding adding anything. Probably this person you're quoting doesn't matter. But also that is one of the most powerful ways that the system trains you to be prone to outrage, to um, stop reading, to shut down the uh, intellectual and rigorous part of your mind and just engage the like monkey brain dopamine chasing part of your mind. If you just stop doing that yeah. for like a month, I think you will find a really pronounced difference 
in social media, um, turn it to dogpile people. Again, these are things where it's not just like, oh, it's not nice to do, but it's yeah. because when you do that, you are complicit in the way that these mega companies are training you to use their product more and more. It's, you know, you're taking more yeah. and more pulls of the cigarette. Um, you're the centrifuge yeah. that is really increasing the volatility of the environment. Yeah, yeah. You're definitely also doing that for sure. Um, yeah. Oh, if you're on YouTube, open it in incognito mode, because if you were logged in, um, or even if you're not logged in, but you're using it on non-incognito mode in your browser, it will track your views very carefully, and then it will serve uh -huh. you up related content that is going to be as likely to hook you in as possible, which is just a great way to be shown stuff incrementally over time, even if it's not immediately obvious that is not healthy for you. So what sure. all of these like little tips have in common is they're all about learning to see social media as a drug, which it is. It's a drug in the sense that it changes your brain chemistry. It's a drug in the sense that it's addictive. And it's a drug in the sense that when you're using it, your behavior changes, parts of your brain shut down, um, your emotions change, which is true of any drug that we use. Yeah. And uh, it's also a piece of advice I'd like to give because um, while there are a lot of drugs we can't do, there are quite a few that we have all kind of decided that it's worth it for us to do, you know, a little bit of them occasionally. I had a cup of coffee this morning. I'll probably have, it's Friday, one to two glasses of wine tonight, maybe even three. But I know because I understand that these are drugs, that they change my behavior, that they're not always good for me. I know to take them in certain ways that I have come to learn are healthy for me. You know, I know not to drive a car after I have a certain number of glasses of wine. I know not to read certain things if I've had a drink because they might make me upset or get into certain kinds of social situations. And I also know that if I start to feel a certain way after I've had a drink or two, like I start to get, you know, annoyed with a friend who I'm out with, I know internally, okay, that's not me. That's the yeah. alcohol that's making me feel that way. And it becomes easier to mentally separate yourself from that. And I think when you use social media that way, it becomes so much easier to use it responsibly because you come to see, you know, maybe there are certain kinds of activities that you try not to do on social media, like just like you try not to do certain kinds of activities when you're on a drug or when you're on alcohol, because you know, it's not healthy and it's not safe for you. And you also come to see the difference between, okay, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook and I'm feeling a certain way. But now I understand because I know Twitter and Facebook are drugs that they are making me feel that way. It's not actually something real that's happening in the world. It's not something real that is happening in this conversation that I'm having that's making me feel that way. So I want to disengage from it. So that's my kind of number one tip for using that safety. Just understanding what it does to you makes it much easier to kind of take a step back from it, I think. That's great. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, the book is called the chaos machine. It is the inside story of how social media rewired our minds and our world. Uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about it, where they can find it and where they can find you. Uh, it is as, as you would expect everywhere books are sold. Um, you've got some good placements at, at Barnes and Noble and especially at independent bookstores, which has been great. It's on, uh, the major online shopping website, um, I definitely know, I, re, I know surprisingly, like a really large number of people who've gotten the audiobook. I'm not really oh, sure nice. why that is, why people love going to the audiobook for this one. It's basically just a hear. podcast that has a point, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that all books are podcasts with a point? Listen, we don't want to crack this one wide open too quick. We're going to focus on the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, every, everywhere you buy books, um, you can find me, unfortunately, 
on Twitter at Max underscore Fisher. Uh, that's really the only public facing public facing platform I use. That's another piece of advice. Limit yourself to one public facing platform. And uh, yeah, I hope that people read it and enjoy it. And if you do, I would love to hear from you. Yes. And if they do, they should quote tweet you dunking on it so that the tweet accelerates <laughs> and the algorithms reward exactly. it, right? That's exactly Excellent. correct. Yes. Yeah, you got it. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Max. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to Max for coming on. The book is The Chaos Machine. You can get it wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thanks for checking out Numlock. Uh, our theme song is by JT Fails. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you listening. Bye.